Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome to the 10 Adventures podcast. I'm Karen, and today we have uh, Jonathan with us. Now, you may remember Jonathan. We talked to him last year sometime after he and a small group of fellows uh, ski toured across the width of Vancouver Island over 10 days. So that was 10 days in the snow in the back country. That was a really entertaining talk that we had. And we've got him now back to talk to us a bit about safety in the back country, particularly in winter. And with the background here, that he just had an injury in the backcountry and needed to be evacuated. So we thought this would be a really good time to touch base with him and, you know, learn a bit about what happened or what can happen in the backcountry and, you know, what we can do to prevent issues if an injury unfortunately happens. So welcome, Jonathan. How are you doing right now? I'm doing pretty good and just hobbling around. Why don't we start and you can tell us a bit about what exactly happened. The short story is that I was backcountry skiing uh, with a friend in the backcountry near Whitewater Ski Resort, which is the ski resort near Nelson, and broke my ankle and had to get be uh, rescued by search and rescue uh, via helicopter. Oh, so that sounds pretty exciting. First of all, just in case people don't know, Nelson is a small ski town in uh, British Columbia in Canada. And so why don't you tell us a bit more about the long story of what happened that led to you being evacuated with a broken ankle? Uh, So we were skiing in kind of the basin, one basin over from the ski area. So you climb up a ridge, descend down the backside, and then there's an area called the burn, which uh, burnt in a forest fire a number of years ago and just has wonderful open tree skiing with uh, the remaining burnt trees. We went over there, we did a couple laps, and on our last lap on before we were coming home, uh, I was skiing down and had what at first seemed to be you know, a very simple uh, run-of-the-mill little fall. I caught an edge in some crusty snow and rotated around and landed on my butt and at first you know even my partner was yelling you know kind of making fun of me because he thought he thought he was nothing as well but I stood up and I realized that it hurt a lot and I began trying to continue skiing I did two long traverses and at that point the pain was getting quite severe I sat down to assess my options and assess what I thought had happened because at that point I hadn't realized it didn't seem reasonable that I had broken my ankle because it seemed like such a minor fall. But I kind of sat down after trying to ski, and as the pain was increasing, after a bit of consultation with my partner, we decided for a number of reasons to activate uh, the SOS feature on my inReach. Okay. So just to get back to things, because one of the things I thought that was interesting about, first of all, your injury, was that you were on a reasonably popular from what you've described backcountry area pretty close to a ski hill is that right like when you're talking about skiing this part of the burn yeah so it's a it's a relatively popular area like we saw one or two other parties out there that day not 
in very close proximity, but we did see other people out. And although it is close to the ski area, uh, just the fact that you have to go up and down a ridge to get there, it does feel and more remote. And later on, I'll get to some of the extraction options and why that might have complicated things. And the conditions that day, like, was it a tricky day to be out? The skiing felt wonderful. There was a bit of new snow over top of a crust that was skiing very well, a bit of a breakable crust. But so we were having, and it was a beautiful sunny day. It was absolutely gorgeous. And frankly, it was the, it was my best day of the season so far, one of my best days of the season. And I was having an absolutely wonderful time. A reasonably popular backcountry area, beautiful conditions, and you have a just catch an edge and have a fall doesn't seem like too much but then you quickly realize that you can't ski on that ankle and so I'm curious like when you're sit you said you sat down then and your friend was kind of you know teasing you a bit because you both didn't think it was that big of a deal but once you sat down and realized you couldn't ski like what was going through your mind at that point like what were you thinking then Number one, I was thinking, thank God I set up this inReach last night because I just, this is a new inReach and I had set it up literally the night before and my credit card did and everything. I was happy. Whoa, that is lucky. And for those who don't know, um, can you just tell us what an inReach is? So it's a satellite communicator. So you're able to send messages to phone numbers or email addresses. But I think the, the main functionality of it or the most important functionality is an SOS button that you can press and it'll activate an, a response from SAR search and rescue. Okay great so you were sitting there one you're thankful about setting up your your new in reach that previous day and then like when you're sitting there what are you thinking about this injury? I kind of thought it was just a really really bad sprain because I after the crash I tried to ski a little bit and what hurt the most was trying to lift up that foot with the weight of a ski and ski boot. So I knew like that was extremely painful. And I kind of knew I couldn't skin up because if we were to self-rescue, we would have skied down to the valley bottom and gone up 400 or so vertical meters to the ridge and then had to ski down another four or 500 vertical meters. So what I was most concerned about was that skin up, having to lift my ski up with every step of the skin. And I just didn't think I could do that. Another consideration I was making when I, when I was talking with my friend about making the SOS call was the fact that if we were to continue down the valley, it looked like we would be getting into thicker forest. So we were kind of in one of the more open areas that had been burned, and we were going to go into an area that had not been burned. I was thinking about options. I thought that us being rescued by helicopter was a decently you know, probable uh, outcome. So I thought, okay, we're in a visible spot right now. And at that time, it was just before two o'clock in the afternoon. So I thought, okay, we have around three hours of daylight left tonight. And I thought, okay, that should give SAR a good amount. Like I wasn't 100% that we'd get out that night, that day. But I thought, okay, if SAR chooses to do a, a helicopter rescue, we're kind of in at least a doable situation, right? Like we're easy to find. And we have what seems like enough time to get out that day. Just to be clear, you're talking about enough time to get out because in the winter in Canada, the light gets low kind of between four and five. And what's the time that they can rescue you? I think uh, generally for a helicopter, they have to be shut down at the heliport 
ballpark 30 minutes after sundown. And I think sundown that day was around 4.45 or 5 o'clock. Right. So you knew there was limited time when, once you sat there in the snow for you to be rescued. I guess what I'm hearing is then that you realize that as you're sitting there, you're not going to be able to ski out because it's just too much pain to ski out. So then you have to decide, okay, now I'm going to choose to be, you know, activate my beacon, which I set up last night and, uh, and get a rescue. So presumably that's what you did next then? Yeah. So we just hung tight and set off the SOS. Also, uh, I short, shortly thereafter, I contacted my girlfriend just to let her know. Um, and I guess some things I learned through that pro- like while I was sitting there was uh, the SOS people responded to me. Yeah. What happens after you set up, send off the SOS? Do you hear back from them or? On the ground. Like, I didn't really know how this all worked before going in. But on the ground that day, I got a response saying, okay, you know, we've received your message. SOS will be activated shortly. And then they asked me for my age, weight and name. Uh, and that was about all the communication I actually received from the SOS. It is a two-way communicator to the inReach. So it connects with your phone. And you're able to type out messages on your phone and it'll send through the inReach. Uh, so the, that two-way communication directly with the SOS people was quite limited. And I actually found out later that those that, that organization, the, like who you're cu- communicating with on that end is, dire- is with a, a call center in Texas. So basically you activate an SOS. They then call the appropriate um, number based on where you are because that call center is for everywhere in the world um, and activate it that way. Uh, but they then they also call the emergency contacts who have set up. Um, and my girlfriend was one of them and she got a call from Texas, which she thought was a scammer call at first because who was calling you from Texas at you know 2 p.m. on a Friday or on a Saturday. She already knew and she was in contact with with people after I sent the message to her. Right, right. So you've activated the beacon. Just to be clear, from my understanding, there's different beacons that people can use. And yours, the in-reach one, it allows you to also like send messages and stuff. But I have heard that there's other beacons that it's just an SOS. There's no messaging after that. I don't know a lot of details about that. Um, just that there are different emergency beacons that people have. So once you set off the SOS, then they contacted you. But then you were also sending messages to other people like your girlfriend to let them know what was happening yeah after you've heard that how are you feeling i was a lot less scared than i thought i would be if you would have asked me the day before what happens if you break your ankle in the backcountry tomorrow and you're just sitting there waiting uh not really knowing when or if a chopper's coming to get you would you how would you be feeling i probably would have said extremely anxious but i think i was very preoccupied with trying to deal with the pain And also maybe distracting myself by thinking about all the different options that might happen that night. And also, I will say, my partner, who was skiing with me that day, was was just the like the best had the best possible energy and mood that you could ask for and demeanor. Like he was extremely calm, and you know we're kind of talking about what might happen. Oh, chalk might come. We have to spend the night. People might just ski out to us and help us spend the night, or we might be on our own. So all these options we were thinking of in terms of contact and timeline to contact, he was just like, oh yeah, that'll, you know, what it, you know, that'll be okay. Or, you know, like he was just unfazed by anything. 
And uh, Joe definitely, I think his energy also was extremely calming in the situation. But also, I was I was very happy with my response because at that point, when I sat down the second time, I also did a brief inspection of my ankle. So with my first aid training, I just I, I left it in the ski boot because I knew that was acting as a bit of a splint. Um, but I inspected it a little bit and couldn't feel any big deformities and I still had circulation and I still had feeling and could move my toes. So at that point, I kind of was feeling confident at least that whatever was wrong with my ankle was causing the pain. Uh, nothing is is incredibly urgent or limb-threatening. So I, I, I just knew like, okay, it hurts and it's going to be dealt with eventually. But for the time being, there's there's no problem with me waiting. Like the waiting isn't detrimental to anything, but maybe getting a bit cold. Now you mentioned that you had um, first aid training, and um, I think one thing that's really interesting about you is you actually have quite a bit of training to be in the backcountry, don't you? I have my uh, avalanche operations and eighty-hour first aid course. I try to take planning pretty seriously, and I try to be prepared. And what's involved in avalanche operations, just out of interest? That's more like a preparing or assessing for avalanche risk. Yeah, so that's that's an operate like so. If you were to work for in the ski industry or for highways or for anything where you're assessing avalanche hazard or doing avalanche control, those are the courses you take to become an avalanche professional. So I've only taken the level one course. Normally, when you're backcountry skiing, you're very much focusing on the avalanche danger. And so we had spent a lot of time as a group talking about the avalanche danger. We were very confident in our decision based on what we'd observed and what we knew the hazards were, the problems and you know, changing uh, variables of the day. But uh, it ended up, you know, not being an issue, right? It was it was a total kind of fluke fall. Yeah, actually, I, I find that part really interesting too, because we always think, oh, like if something goes wrong, it's something big, like I need all this avalanche training, which of course, if you're going to be backcountry in the winter, you do need. But I guess people don't really think like, yeah, but it might be like, like I tripped kind of injury, you know, like it doesn't have to be a major thing that can get you trapped out there. So getting back to like you and your partner, you're waiting for this rescue, whatever it's going to be. And you're sitting there and you said that he was really calm. And what did you guys do to kind of settle in for the weight that was also aimed at keeping you both safe too? I don't really remember very much what we did exactly to pass the time, but you know, we were, I was busy at least for the first hour or so, probably messaging people and trying to make sure everything was happening on the, from the other end. Um, and then, you know, we just put on kind of all our layers. So I wasn't, I was sitting down and sitting down with my foot in the ski boot. I actually didn't feel like it was in that much pain. I tried to move, like I was sitting stock still. It was, it was very manageable pain, but if I tried to move, it hurt a lot more. And so I put on all my layers. I had even an, an extra layer to give my partner. And so he, especially as the sun went down closer to four o'clock, uh, when the sun went behind the ridge opposite the valley, the temperature started to drop and he started, you know, to be hiking back and forth um, in, in the deep snow to keep warm, you know, breaking trail up and down the hillside kind of thing, which worked very well for him. And then we were also just talking about our plans if a chopper came. So he, what was really helpful was he was actually involved in the rescue of his father uh, hiking in Scotland. So his father was long lined off a mountain when he was having uh, 
respiratory or cardiac distress. Uh, so he kind of understood what might happen. He was, from the very beginning, he was pretty certain that we would be long lined out. And so he was talking about preparing for that. So what did he or you and he do uh, with that in mind? So he, well, number one, he got out a heat reflective blanket, like one of those big emergency blankets. Number one for me to wear because I wasn't able to keep as warm as him. Um, which actually, I was really shocked at how much it did. It really kept the wind off and made a big difference. Um, and then, he, but he was also talking, you know, if we see the chopper, we'll hold this blanket out. It will be a lot more visible. It's, you know, it's large and bright orange, safety orange, you know. Uh, and then he also was su suggested that he drag me to the most open spot in the area. He was thinking, like, if there's a chopper coming, we need to be in the most accessible area to be seen and also to be accessed. Yeah. And so he did that? He dragged you to a new area? He dragged me down the hillside maybe 10 or 20 meters, which I was very, 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 very scared of because I thought it was going to be excruciatingly painful. And was it? No, like I, I kind of supported my ankle. Like I held onto my ski boot and supported my ankle so that it was just in there uh, without any weight or tension on it. It hurt a bit, but and that he held me by my armpits and dragged me uh, downhill back first kind of thing. And then at around in the early, you know, four o'clock time frame, I don't really, I'm not, I don't have a good handle on the exact times everywhere, but on the early four o'clock ish time, the chopper, we heard the chopper and saw it come over the ridge. That must have felt like amazing to see that was the lights going down. It was definitely pretty good. But then what was a bit disconcerting is it flew directly over us and into the valley behind us. Oh, no. And we heard it like so at that valley would be two valleys over from the ski area. Uh, and so we heard it going around there a lot. And then it came back to our area. Then it looked to have finally found us after maybe 10 minutes of flying over there. It came back to us where the dr drainage we were in and we were, you know, obviously the whole time holding out the emergency blanket and waving and all this stuff and did a few passes. And then once or twice it did a few after it obviously had seen us, it did a few passes in our area and we figured and turned out to be true that they were just trying to you know, make, make a plan for what they were going to do. And then they flew back to the ridge above the ski hill, kind of the ridge separating our valley from the ski hills valley and the road and our way to get to safety. They landed there and shut off. And at that point, that was probably when I was like, for those 10, 15 minutes, I was the time I was the most anxious probably in the evening. Because what was going through your mind when that was, when they turned off the helicopter? They were on a ridge, turned off the helicopter. I thought, okay, are they going to take off and come with a long line to get us? Because I was even skeptical that they had a long line or, you know, we, they, we didn't see it at first or anything. And I, I didn't really know if that was a, a thing SAR did or, you know, was able to do with that short notice. Uh, so I thought, are they going to come get us or are they just dropping off people who are going to ski down and join us and then make us, you know, more comfortable for the evening or just because that's something SAR sometimes does. So I'm going to interrupt you just for a second, just in case people don't know the um, the lingo SAR is S-A-R. It's short form for search and rescue. So when you're saying SAR, that's what you're referring to. And you keep referring to long line. So for people who don't know what that is, what does that mean? So it's basically on the end of a chopper, there's a very long line, maybe 20 meters long. I don't really know exactly how long, but 
if a helicopter is transporting heavy goods, you can have heavy goods at the end of a long line. So if you're building like a backcountry hut, they'll long line in a lot of the building materials. So it's just a line hanging from the chopper that they lower down or lower stuff down to the ground with. I think you can have one that can raise and lower, but this one is just a fixed line. In our case, there was a man on the end harnessed and attached to the end of the line that the helicopter flies with. But you had said that um, the helicopter had turned off on the ridge. At that point, maybe I was like, okay, well, if they had a long line, they would have had it out already or something. I don't really know what I was thinking, but I kind of, I wasn't sure how the long line works. So I didn't really think they were doing anything with the long line. I thought they were just dropping people off. But then we saw it spin up and take off and we saw a long line coming off the bottom of it <laughs> that would have been a good sign <laughs> with a guy hanging off the bottom with his skis between his legs and so they fly over very slowly from the ridge lower the guy down and obviously at that point even though the helicopter is 20 meters above you you're still getting pelted by snow in the wash of the of the blades he kind of bangs off a tree as he's coming down one of the few trees handles it great and he he lands and he gets ab like straight to work it was it was a, it was very it was yeah very 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 impressive to watch that guy work so what did he do he landed and it was just me and my partner he basically instructed us to collect all of our gear and to get ready uh, and he started helping me into a harness and then helped my friend into a harness so we we were both in these big harnesses they have a name i f i forget and where does the harness go? Like around your mid middle or like a climbing harness? It's like all the way. So there's armholes and it goes through your legs and connects. So it's really full. Like mo your entire torso, upper body is in the harness. Everything but your limbs is in, and your head are in the harness. You wear like a jacket with kind of a crotch strap. And as we got us in a harness, we put our backpacks on. We tied our skis together and clipped them on to my partner's harness. And what what was in kind of intense was he while well, when he first landed he radioed the chopper and said how much time do I have, and the guy said three to five minutes. So we were on a serious time crunch because at that point it was like mid four o'clock, four thirty, four forty five maybe, and it was definitely getting dark. But he he was working really fast. He knew exactly what we had to do. Uh, I got my helmet on uh, for the chopper ride, and we all got ready. And then the chopper came back because. When the, the when the chopper landed to drop him off, he disconnected from the chopper from the long line and then it got us all ready. So we were out, outside of the rotor wash and then the chopper came back to pick us all up. Wow. So you guys are in your harnesses and then the chopper's taken off. And so what was that like? Like at the bottom of a long line in the air flying? For me, that was actually... The, like basically the most painful or one of the most painful parts of the whole evening just because my ankle I wasn't really able to support it as much and it was getting jostled around a lot and as much as people tried to support it it was just you know inevitable that it was gonna have kind of a rough transport and so I was yelling and screaming a little bit and hoping to do my best to keep keep it all together but uh it definitely was gorgeous because it was a beautiful clear sunset and I do have a few memories of how beautiful it was. Yeah, I've seen some um, photos of that rescue on the Nelson Search and Rescue Facebook page. Uh, I know you probably weren't seeing it that day, but the photos that they have are just incredible. It was a beautiful evening. I do, I do know that. 
Uh, so the, he- the helicopter dropped us off in the parking lot of the whitewater ski area and then quickly packed up the long line and took off for the base uh, where I later found out that they landed, you know, right at the shutoff time, like the legal shutoff time. They landed you know, right there. There was absolutely no time to spare for the helicopter. So you're really lucky that you got out. Yeah, I was very lucky to make it out that night. And You're really lucky they saw you and that that guy was so experienced and got you hooked up and out of there so quickly. My very excellent. Like Seeing the SAR people work was extremely impressive. And I'm very grateful for how, how much training they do and how... Uh, that's the thing. I was, I was met by the rest of the SAR folk uh, in the parking lot because I think originally the chopper had been full of SAR people and then when they knew they were doing the long line, they all got dropped off on the ridge to ski back to the parking lot and it was so to make the helicopter lighter. So it was just the pilot and the long line tech technician. But then so I was, I was met by a, a bunch of folks at the in the parking lot and they were they told me the ambulance was on the way. Uh, and one of the SAR volunteers also works uh, for this for the ski patrol at Whitewater. And he said, you know, I can either take off your ski boot, you know, I'm trained to do so in the least invasive and painful way, or, you know, the uh, ambulance paramedics can. Um, And so I said, okay, you can go for it. And that ended up being, again, he was, he did, he did a great job, but it was also an extremely, extremely painful part of the night. Am I right? Like you mentioned this, but search and rescue in Canada, they're volunteers. Is that right? Yeah. So they were, they were all volunteers that evening. Yeah. Like people with all this training and all all their own time doing these amazing rescues. It's very impressive. And, uh, you know, I was, I'm not getting any sort of charge for the helicopter or anything like that. Wow. That's impressive. And so ambulance came, took you to hospital. So yeah, I was in hospital, got the x-rays that evening and a bit of a reduction and then was sent home. And then the next morning I went out to the trail hospital, which is a slightly larger town, an hour away from Nelson to get surgery on my ankle, have metal plates put in or a metal plate put in where it fractured. And now you're well and recovering but like since the event, um, I think I heard you've I've heard that you know you've had some communication with search and rescue and other people that were involved, and you know there's a lot of things that you learned after the fact too that are helpful for people to know about. Yeah, so I, I think I touched on this earlier, but like in terms of the timing, I think making a decisive call early, like just taking that second to sit down and think about. What are my options and what are the outcomes of those options? And the early SOS call I did was definitely like the reason we got out that evening. You know, if we had waited 10 or 15 minutes or I tried to ski into a thicker forest uh, or any of these things, it really could have easily ended up very differently. Yeah, because if they hadn't gotten you right at that minute, you would have been spending a night, just the two of you, in the backcountry in winter. Yeah. Which, like, we, you know, we, we had layers to do that that would have sucked, but it, we would have done it. It would have been a chilly night, but we wouldn't have died or anything. The, the biggest takeaway I have is just how all these, I, well, I, can, I can speak for inReach, but it's probably pretty similar for other satellite communication devices as well. I think a lot of them use the same 
call center in Texas. But with all of these things, there is an elaborate game of telephone going on between you and search and rescue. So in this case, as far as I understand it, I activated SOS with the call center in Texas. They contacted the RCMP, who then contacted search and rescue. That's as far as I understand. And my emergency contacts were talking directly with the RCMP. We're talking with SAR. Uh, there, it might be different in other areas or different search and rescue groups or different countries. This is in Canada. But what was what I think led to us almost not getting rescued and the reason the chopper flew o- over us that first time is the fact that the first set of coordinates that the uh, call center in Texas sent uh, were very inaccurate because they were the first set of coordinates that my inReach sent them just after it was fired up. And by coordinates, you're talking about GPS coordinates. Yeah, GPS coordinates, so Latin long. You know, I fired up my GPS and basically hit the SOS button right away. And because of that, it, the very first set of coordinates it sent out were, you know, pretty inaccurate. They were said they were two kilometers inaccurate. Or they, you know, they had, a two, they had a two kilometer radius of accuracy. It took the call center, I think, as far as I understand, it, it took the call center a number of hours to send search and rescue updated coordinates because after it was only until after that chopper had taken off that the search and rescue base received updated coordinates. And by that time, they were out of cell service, so couldn't send them to them. So the reason why we were, we had the plane fly over us is because they had these coordinates that were way off. is from one valley over. I learned later after talking with some of the search and rescue people is that they were considering, you know, flying back into cell service to try and phone, like touching down somewhere with cell service, phoning and getting updated coordinates. But as we know from what happened with the rescue, like there was no time for that. If they had had done that, there would have been no time for them to have completed the long line rescue. So you were also lucky that your partner had pulled you out into the open and put out this big orange blanket because while they were looking for you in the wrong place they actually saw you, which is what made you actually get out. Exactly, yeah. So that was critical. That's interesting. Were, when you talked to Search and Rescue, like the next day or two later, were there other things that they commented on? Like things that you guys did right, things they think you could consider for next time? Um, kind of the most of the conversation we had was about that time delay and just kind of that navigating that game of telephone. And I think... The biggest thing I've learned is obviously have a have someone you trust or who you who knows where you're going with a trip plan and have you know probably that same person is going to be your emergency contact and basically rely on them to give information to the RCMP because my girlfriend was contacted by the RCMP and you know the RCMP asked her what are they wearing anything distinguished about them and then she could message me and ask me that. And I responded saying, oh, you know, our jackets are blue and yellow and we're going to have this big orange safety blanket out. So watch for that. I think you told me before that didn't you also tell her like what what area you were in? So they knew that you were in the burn and uh, even though that wasn't where your GPS coordinates said you were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So being able to communicate with that was super helpful then it sounds like. That was definitely super helpful. And I guess the biggest takeaway like, was we were extremely close to having to spend the night out and understanding kind of in your mind what you would do in that case and ma- making sure you have all the gear. 
So at one point, were you planning that? Were you thinking, uh-oh? When the chopper touched down, I was, that's what I was thinking. What was going through your mind of what you would start doing if you were going to be spending the night? So we had extra layers and the emergency bivy sack. I think what we would have done is tried to dig at least a partial snow shelter. So what we could have done is we could have even just dug a big, it would have been challenging since I was very, like I wasn't very mobile. And so I also wouldn't be able to dig. So I think thinking about it, we would have built some sort of snow shelter and sealed it up. Like what would probably be easiest to, to have built a snow shelter with a very large opening so I could get in easily and sealed it up with our uh, skis and um, the safety blanket. That way we'd have the snow insulating us and it would be you know, more or less airtight to keep our energy in. But it, you know, it would have sucked, basically. It would have been uncomfortable, especially since we'd be like sitting on our backpacks the whole night to insulate us from the snow. We're not really able to lie down. So, and are there any changes you've made to, like, when you're going out for a ski tour in the backcountry, whether it's a day tour or a multi-day tour, after having had this experience, are there things that you're going to change, or do you feel like you were really, you know, pretty well prepared? I think for overnight tours, like, you're prepared to spend a night out, so you can definitely, you're going to be more comfortable than anyone on a day trip, you know, you if someone has an injury, you set up the tent, you inflate their thermorest, you put them in their sleeping bag, and they're going to be pretty good. Maybe a bit hungry or thirsty, but if you have to spend you know, an extra one night out, it's not going to be the end of the world. Um, but I think for me, it would have been maybe planning the amount of gear you bring to somehow relate to what, how an extraction would work. So in that place where I was, you either have to get a helicopter extraction or team i was told a team of 20 or so people would have to come and haul you up that 400 vertical meter hillside in groups of four taking turns so that is not like both of those helicopters can be quick but they only can fly in good weather and the other option obviously takes a really long time would take like a full day so in that case like i think if i was if i was going back to a place where i knew extraction would be not easy like it you know, it's different if you're going uphill and the extraction would be, okay, meet SAR and they can just toboggan you down the whole hill or, you know, or if you can, you know, or if it's downhill, then you can most likely extract yourself on a self-made toboggan or just bear through the pain for a couple hundred meters of skiing, you know, over 10 or 30 minutes and make it back to your car. Um, but in these other cases where it's impossible to self-extract and you need that support, just to be aware of the length of time it can take because if I was going back, I might consider bringing a thermorest or maybe one of like a very, very small light stove between the two of us. Or if you have a bigger group, if you have a bigger group, it's like so easy just to pack a little tiny stove and a little tiny thing of fuel just to make hot water overnight. That would be, that would make the whole experience infinitely more comfortable. Yeah, actually, it's interesting. I do know people who, when they go, just go for a day hike, have a little, you know, and have a tiny stove, like a, you know, a day ski, just for emergencies, just like what you said. One person has the pot, one person has the little tiny uh, stove itself, one person has the fuel canister, like one of those, the smallest fuel canister that makes it's like hardly any weight a person. And I think that's something I would consider bringing if you have a big enough group and if you're going somewhere, again, where a it can be either somewhere or in certain weather con- conditions where you think an extraction had to take place that it would be 
more challenging. And you were already before tra- uh, like traveling with, you know, lots of layers in your pack and a, an emergency bivy sack in your pack and a first aid kit. Yeah. So like we, we definitely would have been fine that night. You know, we had a well-stocked first aid kit and I was wearing a lot of layers and we, we would have survived, but uh, it just maybe wouldn't have been as comfortable as it could have been, especially considering, you know, me being in pain. Well, that sounds like quite the experience. Yeah. And it sounds like you really learned a lot. And I must say, I've learned so much. And I think it's good for people to hear because I, I think sometimes people don't think about like, you know, this doesn't have to be a major thing that gets you stuck in the backcountry, right? It can just be something minor and you need to be prepared for if something minor happens where you're not going to be able to get out on your own steam. So I really appreciate hearing all of these things from you and lots to think about for those emergency situations. I think especially in winter, like winter even more so than summer conditions because there's just more challenges, I think. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Well, it's great talking to you, Jonathan. Thanks so much for telling us all about this. And I hope, I really hope you recover quickly and that you're back skiing soon but i guess that won't be for a while if you had surgery thanks for having me no i won't be i'll be skiing this season it sounds like i'll be good for the summer so i can get back out there that sounds good cheerio cheerio we hope you enjoyed this episode of the 10 adventures podcast if you liked it why not give us a review Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures, why not check out 10adventures.com where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure.